don't worry, John, I'm here to tell you you're wrong, even if Liz isn't stepping up to the plate. Yay! You might want to record that one for future reference. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 48th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 6th of January 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have a letter of comment from Farah, and it says here in the show notes, but what did you think of Discon 3? What what did we think of Discon 3, people? I quite liked it. I'm looking forward to the programme being on catch-up, because there were some items I missed or I was double-booked for, and there are items I would quite like to go back and watch. And I think it is, I think it's actually really good that they didn't have the program for catch up over Christmas because I would have watched precisely zero program over Christmas. And uh, I know that they're only going to be putting it up for a limited time. So if that limited time starts after I am not super busy with Christmas, I think that is only a great thing. So congratulations for Discon 3 for that excellent planning. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it all coming online so I can do some watching. Yeah, I, I saw a few items. I missed vastly more because I was 12 hours out of sync, which meant there were maybe two or three program items in time slots when I would normally be awake. So I watched like one or two items per day. I hung around in the Discord a bit. I missed some items I would have liked to watch because they happened to be at times I was awake, but in rooms which were having problems with their streaming, which was a bit unfortunate. Yeah, but generally what I saw, I, I quite enjoyed. I saw some great panels. I saw some panels which were kind of excellent descriptions that went quite rambly and, and vague. I went to some panels where I read the description, thought I'll give this a go, and it turned out it wasn't my thing, so I tried something else. Yeah, we went on Discord. I think I went to one party, which was not a party. It was Alison's Let's Have uh, Cafe Moose uh, in Zoom, and we got a tour of the hotel at like six in the morning, which is very nice. So yeah, I mean, I had a nice time, but I can't really say I saw much of the convention just because I was asleep for most of the time it was happening. So I went to the convention virtually for five solid days. I had not been intending to do this because I'd been expecting to have Christmas things over the that weekend. And in fact, they all got cancelled. So I got five days at Discon, which was great. I really enjoyed myself virtually. I had a lovely time talking to people from all over the world and um, that was really, really good. And some of them are now kind of Café Moose regulars and that's nice. And I think they did a really, really good job of spinning up the virtual side very quickly, more or less in I think the last month before the convention. And given that, I think they did fantastically well with it and there was lots of good stuff. I do have quite a lot of takeaways about how to run virtual and hybrid events I think my biggest is picking up on what Liz said. I think if you're charging $75 for a virtual membership, then the ability to time shift the program items in real time needs to be part of that and part of the planning from the beginning. For another time, I understand why Discon didn't do it, but I think Worldcons should have that as kind of the starting point because it's not just about having the program and being able to watch it later. It's about being able to talk to people about the stuff that you're seeing on the program in the social spaces over the weekend. That's what we do at conventions, right? We see program and then we talk about program to our mates. And that's the key thing we need to enable. And then the other point is that 
when we have these hybrid conventions, we seem to have two conventions going on, one, one of which is a virtual convention happening in Zoom and Discord around the place, and one is the actual physical convention. And I don't think we're doing enough yet. This is not a criticism of Discord because we've only just begun. So I don't think we're doing enough yet to link up those two events so that people feel they're at both of them, that they're actually getting the benefit of the physical convention in the virtual spaces. And so the people at the physical convention also recognise that there are fans who are their friends and who have things to offer in the virtual spaces as well. Those are So those are my big two, two big takeaways from Discon. Really enjoyed myself. Had a great time, was then very behind for the next three weeks. My big takeaway from Discon was sushi. I had a large amount of sushi. I did not book enough takeaways. I think I know now that you. one of the nice things about virtual conventions is ordering your food in. Hmm. Um, and I should have done more of that. We did a little bit. And I did not cook or do anything like that. I just got looked after by my lovely and very long-suffering family again. Um, or as you like to call them, gophers. <laughs> It's certainly true that when I take a role on a convention, I generally discourage Stephen from taking a role on the same convention so that he can be like my personal aide for the weekend. Every so often he gets one of these Hero of the Convention Awards for doing this because other people notice. Brilliant. He's the best. I love you. Love you, darling. I mean, I know you don't listen to the podcast, but you know. What? This is an outrage. He does sometimes. So yes, uh, generally speaking, quite positive, I think, on this con. What I also want to say about Discon is they did have some items which started, well, they would have been very early in the morning uh, in the US. They were early evening for me. But these were part of their uh, quite extensive stream of uh, items on African science fiction and fantasy, which they were obviously running at times that were more suited to the participants, who were nearly all on the ones I saw virtual and actually, you know, joining from Africa. So I think that was a real strength you know, that they could do that, that they could have all these virtual participants who could not make it to the con for financial or other reasons, but they can actually now join in and they are also available for viewing on site. And I'd be really interested to know whether people who had the opportunity to view the virtual panels on site went to them or whether they sort of saved those up for later viewing because they knew they would be recorded and available later. So I think that's an interesting thing from hybrid conventions. If you allow people to watch virtual participants, do they actually go? Or do they decide, well, actually, if it's just going to be four people over Zoom, I could easily watch that later on in the you know comfort of my own home. I'll go to ones that aren't being streamed where the people are actually on site. So let us know, Discon attendees, what happened. We do know from much smaller conventions, Smothcon and Corflu, that some people do go. And people also quite like to watch virtual events from their hotel room. So the the number of the the report back from Discon was that virtual events were not well attended. The, the virtual events that was streamed into the convention were not well attended but i don't think we necessarily know the full extent of how how that doesn't necessarily mean they're not popular yeah that's fair yeah and also doug Thornt asks us what are your thoughts on christmas music and the Worldcon opening ceremony and mine were i i love christmas carols to bits you know i love all sorts of christmas music including a lot of religious christmas music and i thought this was way out of order and i don't think the excuse that that happened to be what the local choir had prepared for christmas and so therefore therefore that was what they had was quite adequate because i i don't think they should have done that i think it raised eyebrows and made people feel excluded and unhappy. And I think having a programme of Christmas music that might have included one religious piece of Christmas music would have been fine, but I think it was a bit a bit much. 
As my pals know, um, I have a Christmas list with thousands of scrap carols on it. I have hundreds of versions of some carols. I love them. So, yeah, I still didn't think they should have done it. The problem here is obviously that we didn't give our picks for SF nor Christmas songs until after Discon 3. So really, we do have to take full responsibility and we apologise to the wider science fiction community. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing it was just one of the things where where the choir went, right, it's Christmas, uh, this is our busiest time of year, here's our like set of possible songs, and they needed to come to some compromise where Discord said either, okay, well, just do one song at this opening ceremony then, or where they tried to arrange with them to, to learn learn something else. But I, I can understand there, having been in choirs at Christmas, you have the set of stuff you're, you're learning, and then you use it at every possible opportunity. I think it's just one of those things, probably... No one vetted it where it occurred to them that this might be a thing. I bet it didn't. I mean, it was really strange to me because so much Christmas music in America is deeply secular because of the whole church and state thing. So an in, it, it seems enormously surprising to me that, that a community choir would have an entirely religious programme and yet not be a gospel choir. Because I think if they, if they had booked a gospel choir, they probably would have expected that. But it wasn't. Um, I circumvented all of these uh, considerations by going to the panel item about role-playing games, which was happening at the same time as the opening ceremony. Yeah. It was good. Yeah, I circumvented the whole thing by being in bed. So, yeah, so, so I did go to that panel on role-playing games, but then I, because the, the opening ceremony was still going on, you could time shift to the extent of running back a live broadcast to the beginning and then watching it, <laughs> which is what I did. Ah, cunning, cunning, cunning. I've had a great conversation since the last Doctor Thought with Eero Alexandra, who is the person who is most pushing for best game Hugo, which we talked about almost a year ago at this time in our Christmas episode in 2020. And in the process of that excellent conversation, I learnt how they pronounce their name, which is not how we pronounced it on that episode. So I'm sorry, um, but I um, hope to be working with you in 2022 as you get this to the business meeting. We also heard from Duncan McGregor, who said that he understood Tenet. Crazy, you'll have to explain it to me at some point, Duncan. And we heard from Chris Garcia, who said that he drove from the desert to Los Angeles for some garlic paste. Fair enough, you do you, Chris. And then finally... Flick wrote in to ask us why we hadn't mentioned the Xinjiang region as part of our discussion of the Chinese Worldcon. For those who don't know, this is a region of China in which the Chinese government is perpetrating various acts against the native Uyghur Muslim population. And this has been described by some, including a House of Commons motion passed here in the UK as a genocide. The reason that we haven't discussed this is because none of us have the expertise or knowledge to discuss it sensitively and well and so we agree that it is a horrible thing that is happening and we are not sure this is the venue to discuss it but we do want to say that we do thoroughly disagree with it and i think also and i don't think we made this clear last time that some people are not going to the chinese world Cup because of the actions of the chinese government in xinjiang and absolutely that's a valid choice for those people to make and I mean that that is pretty much the reason why I voted against them. Basically, I, I I very much like the bid team seemed great. I think it would be great to have world cons in more countries, but you know, taking it to China at this moment in time when there is a lot of repression and internment and and other actions taken against minorities in China was not something I felt I could support. Yeah, but I think 
it's into we want to kind of lay our position out, but it's not something we have any particular expertise in discussing. Yes. And just to echo Liz, I also voted for Winnipeg much to do with this issue and other uh, issues related to uh, China's human rights record. Yep, me three. So we're going to discuss the Hugo Awards a little bit. We did touch on this last episode, but since then, there are more stats. And we love stats here on the Thought podcast. We have the long list, which is officially called the Hugo Nomination Report. And that tells us how many people nominated what in which categories, which is obviously very exciting and interesting stuff. But the most exciting thing on it was that Octothorpe was the last fan cast to be knocked out of best fan cast. So we were seventh. We were very surprised and we were very thrilled. And we thank you all very much. Those of you who nominated us, that was lovely. However, we didn't actually get all that many nominations. And um, by number of nominations, we'd have been 12th. So, so Liz, would you like to explain how the nominations work because I spent a long time scratching my head over this and I think some of our readers might also do. Yeah, so I, I had to go and reread the E Pluribus Hugo method a couple of times before I got it. But basically, I think I do now have a handle on it. So basically, you have a point which is split across everything you nominate in a category. Every item you nominate gets a f- fraction of your points awarded to it. So when you start off, say you put five items in a category, they are all worth 0.2 of a point. So it adds up to one. And basically what happens is they go down the list of nominees and they look at the two each round, which are bottom in terms of number of points. And they knock out the one which has the lowest number of actual people nominating it. So basically every round is is a contest between the ones which have the bottom two points. And when one of them gets knocked out, if you nominated that item, the redistribution of points across your other nominations means that they will now have a slightly higher points total and are more likely to, to carry through. So it's, I think it's quite an elegant method, actually, of saying, look, if you nominate stuff such that when we get to the, you know, the last 10 or the last five, lots of other people have nominated the same as you, then they won't all make it onto the ballot. But this kind of extra check where you don't just remove the last one on points, you remove the one of the last two on points with the fewest nominations means that basically if you and lots of other people all nominate like a set of the same items, one of them will always get through because it will have a lot of people nominating it, even if it doesn't have a lot of points. Yeah, that's completely transparent and clear, isn't it? Absolutely. Yay! <laughs> so, so this means that when we say we were the last one to be eliminated from the ballot, it does mean we did not, we were not the seventh most number of nominations, but because of this contest happening repeatedly through the nominations, uh, we were the last one to be uh, contested before the six finalists in that category were selected. And what a slate of finalists they were. What this means in practice is that most people who nominated us did not nominate any other fan casts in the top 16, which is which looks to us like our listeners rose up on mass to support us and don't otherwise listen to that many other fan casts but it could also look to somebody else like oh god they just rounded up their mates and got them to vote for them which nicholas white says is a known feature of eph thank you nicholas um so you guys should be listening to more good fan casts and to support that we are going to in 2022 tell you about some other good fan casts that you might want to be listening to um, and also, you tell us if there's fan casts that we should be supporting that we are not already doing so. 
as we said last week, best fan cast is one of the categories where there is a risk of it not getting enough votes. So we we very much want to make sure that everyone knows what fan casts are good and have listened to them and vote in them because we love this category. Yes, because we do a fan cast. <clears throat> we got a tweet of comment from Robot Archie on Twitter, who is Martin Easterbrook, who asked us what we thought of EPH continuing to be in effect after the problems posed by the puppies had gone away Um, and I have a couple of thoughts on this so firstly I think I I think that part of the thing with EPH is the 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 fact that it is in effect may be a contributing factor to the fact that attempts to game the Hugos have decreased markedly since that happened and so I'm a little bit reluctant to get rid of it just in case it is having a deterrent effect on the people who were trying to game the Hugos. Um, there was one category, which was Best Fan Writer, in which the sixth finalist to make it onto the ballot got on because of EPH-related effects, but then ended up winning the category. <clears throat> the other thing, I think, is that any mechanism which gets the eventual winner of a category onto that ballot is probably a good mechanism, because if the electorate think of those six people, that person is the best. That, to me, indicates that person should have been on the ballot to be selected from. So I think, in general, I am pro-EPH remaining in effect, uh, even after the slate voting has subsided. And I think it may also not be a coincidence that the Hugos have seen a very diverse uh, range of voices being nominated since since this came into effect as well. So I, I think, in general, I see several potentially very good outcomes for the Hugos coming out of EPH. And then my co-hosts will tell me why I am wrong. I, I wasn't going to say you were wrong, actually. I was going to uh, point out that uh, the, the fan writing question is uh, Elsa Shunison. And actually, she had a book out in October 2021, which I saw being mentioned in quite a lot of places. So I wonder if actually she was nominated on the basis of previous work. But then when people went to find out more about her, they found her recent book. And that may be a contributing factor for why she came top in that category. Yeah, it's also one of those problems with fan writing, which is if you write a lot of blogs on a subject and you're very good at it, then turning those blogs into a book is a natural thing to do. And in this case, it was tweets rather than blog posts. But it is this is a a work that is a professional work that has arisen out of what was fan writing. And this is something that does make the whole link between fan and pro, which we've talked about before and we'll talk about again, very complicated. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't recognise fan writing, which Elsa's work clearly was. My worry about EPH, and I think on the whole, what you said about it's fine and it's not a bad mechanism and I quite like it. I don't like mechanisms where if I am nominating, I have to think, oh, so I love this thing. And I have to consider whether I should nominate everything else, anything else, because if I nominate anything else, it reduces the chance the thing I love gets on the ballot. And that seems to me to be the big downside of EPH for me, is that it act, it actively discourages, would discourage me because of being a kind of gaming mathematician from nominating more than one thing in some categories on some occasions. I mean... <sighs> I think that is only true if the things you nominate are all extremely unpopular. 
Yeah, true, right? Because basically, if you're nominating because you need your something needs your votes to get through to like the top fifteen or something, then actually, and, and it would be diluted by nominating anything else. Then, if you know everything you're nominating is quite unpopular. Whereas if you nominate something which is nominated by lots of other people and something which is nominated only by you and your thing nominated only by you gets knocked out, it just kind of increases the the points you get from your other nominations. I mean, my feeling on EPH is one, yes, it's a deterrent. It basically means if you're a slate, you can get one thing on the ballot and people are not keen enough on getting one thing on the ballot rather than six to pay for lots of supporting memberships to do that. But also it feels like it fits kind of with transferable vote, which because single transferable vote ends up kind of picking often not the thing that the most people put in first place necessarily, but the thing that maybe the most people were happy with having ranked highly. You know, it's not a first past the post system. And now in the nominations, we've kind of come up with a thing which tries to pick like a set of nominees such that the largest number of people will see something they nominated on the ballot. So I think you could make an ideological argument for it there. But I think a much better argument is if we got rid of it, we might then have three years where someone was like, aha, I will now get 100 of my friends to nominate six things and it'll take us three years to put EPH back in to fix it again. So EPH actually made very few differences to ballot instead of just taking like the, the top six on nominations. But one place it did make a difference is in Best Editor's short form where Lee Harris was seventh whereas he would have been sixth under like a pure nomination counting system. And this feels particularly harsh because he was also the last person eliminated in best editor long form. So he essentially was the last person limited in both best editor categories, which I feel is a little, it's just a little bit of a rough deal, especially as there's very few other changes that EPH made, apart from I think one, one change in novella, that kind of thing. Lee, we're very sorry if you're listening, which you're not. The other interesting thing, is The Mandalorian. So The Mandalorian had two episodes nominated uh, and in the top six on Best Dramatic Presentation short form. And because of that, they were removed from Best Dramatic Presentation long form. And I assume that's because it managed to get two on the ballot in short form and one in long form. But actually, it had the same number of votes for its highest ranked episode in short form and for long form. So I wonder how you actually decide you know, which, which course you take there, because obviously it makes a difference to what gets on the ballot in fifth and sixth place in those categories. So if you are a Hugo administrator and you'd like to comment, um, do get in touch, Nicholas <laughs> or Cat. But no, I mean, not, you know, just because it is interesting. It is very interesting. Um, I'm also going to link to um, a bunch of blog posts from uh Camestros Falapton, where he has dug into the Hugo nominations in even more detail. So if anyone really likes stats, there's some more stats. And we are also going to link to Nicholas White's analysis of the Hugo Awards. We dug down the long list because I love digging down the long list and I found a lot of interesting things in it. Um, there are always interesting things. And the first one I want to talk to about, uh, no, somebody else can talk about best series. Best series is my favourite Hugo Award category because it is the category that consistently throws up things that I like in the genre because most of my genre reading is big old series of great books. Ben Aranovich's Rivers of London series is amazing. I just read the short story anthology in that universe that has come out and I really enjoyed it um, and I've loved all the books. I've recently started reading the comics as well uh, but I would love to see that series win the best series Hugo uh, down the road. And uh, yes, hopefully, hopefully people nominate that again in future years. Someone else can talk about Young Wizards. 
Right, okay. So Diane DeWayne's Young Wizards, So You Want to Be a Wizard, fantastic books. Um, strongly recommended. They're amazing. In general, I am, as regular listeners will know, not a fan of things that are about the process of the conventional Hugo Awards getting nominated in their own right, because I feel like it's a bit circular and not necessarily what we really should be celebrating. We should be looking more outwards from our own mechanisms. However, tucked away in the long list were some nominations for something called the Hugo Spreadsheet of Doom, which I was not previously familiar with. So I went and looked it up and it is a spreadsheet of possible things for the Hugo Awards. And I'm quite a big fan of crowdsourcing lists of things that might be eligible for awards. And I think these sorts of lists are great if lots of different people contribute to them so that you have a really broad set of things that people could be reading and looking at. So we are going to put a link to the Hugo Spreadsheet of Doom in the show notes. We'll put the link to the 2022 one so you can start nominating. And we think it's open for your suggestions. And because I particularly think that that the fan Hugos are currently being a bit poorly served by the nominators and voters, I particularly suggest that you get all your suggestions for fan works, fan artists and fan writers and fanzines and fan casts onto there. I'm I'm just going to point out that I didn't realise you hadn't seen the Hugo spreadsheet of Doom before. And I've definitely put it in the show notes at least once. So... <laughs> Brilliant. Did you know about it, John? Yep. Okay. Yep, yep. So it's only me. So so lots of the things. So for example, so also on the long list were the fact that Outworlds, which was a bit of a poster child fanzine fandom this year, was kind of people really, really wanted to get Outwards onto the ballot and they did not manage to do that. But it was quite close. This is the la- this was the last issue of Outworlds, so you're not going to be able to do another one. The the giant Outworlds Seventy-one. Just say that, and then Mark can write in and tell us we're wrong. Right? Good luck, Hook. Outwards sixty-nine. Nice. Which is definitely correct. Uh, uh, Outworld seventy-one. I say slightly. Not quite surely. Please write in, Mark Plummer. So it's its last episode of Outworld. So that was its last chance. It didn't quite make it on the ballot, but it did do very creditably. Um, William Briding's Portable Storage, which is my number one thing for if you like interesting fanzines that do a lot of different things, you should definitely be checking out Portable Storage because it is full of uh, Zircon articles, Fanish articles, articles that are like way off everywhere. It's just the most extraordinary thing. And it's on eFanzines, so you can read it for free. And also the drink tank was something that looked like, to me, looks fancy and shaped that was just a little bit below the ballot by a by friend of the show, Chris Garcia. But I don't think any of those fanzines were on were on the Hugo Spreadsheet of Doom. And in my view, they should have been. And if I had known about the Hugo Spreadsheet of Doom at nomination time, they'd all have been on. Raytheon sponsored the Hugo Awards in some capacity and later discon 3 released an apology for this and i believe donated the amounts that raytheon sponsored to various charities dedicated to peaceful works uh, we will put a link to discon 3's apology in the show notes lots of people were very sad about this because raytheon has done some things to do with the u.s military industrial complex and understandably if you have problems with u.s foreign policy vis-a-vis the u.s military uh, you may therefore have problems with raytheon and their capitalist influence well i mean they make bombs raytheon make bombs 
They make bombs work. And that is a thing that upsets a lot of people. And it upsets a lot of people on Twitter. And I think more generally people going that this is slightly off as a sponsor for the Hugos. The other sponsorship for Discon was Google, which nobody, people sometimes have a problem with Google sponsoring things, but nobody really has a problem in this case because what Google sponsored was the human transcription of almost every program item. And that was popular with everybody, was not obviously selling Google, though obviously it's quite related to the sort of thing that Google cares about and likes um, and will mean that those transcripts are probably indexed forever in Google's set of indexing the world's knowledge. But it kind of feels very much aligned with what the Worldcon is about. And I think the Worldcon didn't do a good enough job of demonstrating how Raytheon sponsorship might also have been aligned with the sorts of things we do at Worldcons. And people were extremely upset about it. What they did was sponsor the red carpet. We don't know the exact amounts of money, but what it meant was that the Hugo that the backdrop for photographs of the Hugo Awards was a, a backdrop that had um, the Hugo Awards and Raytheon as the as the co-branding on the on the backdrop. And I, I feel like this is something that I would like the Mark Protection Committee to have a think about and might say to future Worldcons, you are not allowed to have anything on the backdrop for the Hugo Awards banner apart from the Hugo Awards and maybe the name of the convention. Of course, the Mark Protection Committee can't do that. Because they're outranked by the Worldcon committee, so if the Worldcon committee, it's the use of the it's the use of the Hugo Awards brand. The world the Worldcon committee has the final say in how that's used. So if the Worldcon committee and the NPC disagree on Hugo Award branding, the Worldcon committee wins because the entire point of Wasfus is to vest the power in the Worldcon. Ah, this is with my tedious NPC hat on. No, this is great. So does that mean that the Mark Protection Committee could issue a non-binding resolution <laughs> suggesting that this would be a good idea? Basically, the whole of Wusfus is designed so that Wusfus doesn't have much actual power over the Worldcon, which is on purpose, but it does mean that Worldcons can dig themselves giant holes and that it's very difficult for Wusfus to legislate in a way that prevents that in any meaningful sense. Which is probably the right way for it to be. Yeah, which is probably what we want, but does result in the occasional big whoops. Okay, so this was a bit of a big whoops. I think I want to go back in time a little bit on um, Raytheon and Discon, which is that a couple of months before the Worldcon, it didn't have any money and they were definitely scrabbing about quite vigorously to to try and find some sources of money because they were worried that they were going to lose a packet. And this is, of course, before they got 2,000 unexpected supporting memberships from China. Um, which almost certainly sorted their financial problems out much more than, and, and so they, so therefore they were then in a position to to give the money to a suitable cause. But certainly there was a point where everyone was like, "This Wilcon has no money. We are really, really tight. It's going to be very, very difficult." And I think it's in that context that they took the money. One of the things that was pointed out on Twitter after the controversy over the Raytheon sponsorship was that Raytheon were also one of the contractors employed in launching the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, and so Sean Duke tweeted saying that he was eating popcorn, watching everyone who was offended by Raytheon being involved with the Hugo Awards also being involved with a thing that everyone was celebrating. Yeah, I mean, I think it just shows that this is, you know, the issue of who should sponsor uh, Worldcon and in particular the Hugo Awards is probably not a particularly clear-cut thing. I mean, I think it's worth noting that like Raytheon is actually like four subsidiaries uh, 
you know, one of them is the missile and defense one, and it was the intelligence and space part that was sponsoring the Hugos. Um, but, you know, can you really separate what a company does out into these different parts so easily? And also, does it mean that they essentially can say, well, actually, no, this isn't the bit that makes missiles that's sponsoring you. This is the bit that just makes the radar that guides missiles or something like that. So I think it's just, it's, it's, it's complicated to do this sort of thing under capitalism because I bet there's like three companies capable of making the guidance system for the James Webb Space Telescope. And they probably almost all have some hand in, you know, defense defense related companies and technologies as well and you kind of have to accept that if you want to have space telescopes so maybe the thing is we should all we should be interrogating maybe who sponsors the hugos and who we kind of um have putting their names on the backdrop of our biggest awards and you know i think future conventions are going to have to come up with a policy for this because it was definitely being asked of the next conventions but maybe it is something where we should also say actually is it great that we can only do space exploration essentially with the help of these companies that are also heavily involved in kind of the defense industry, which may be getting a little wider than, you know, the issue of Worldcon sponsorship. And this is one of the problems with scientific endeavor is that it's very difficult to do scientific endeavor without engaging with uh, capitalism. And obviously, uh, especially in space uh, physics, you do end up relying on companies that also do missiles. I mean, the entire field of endeavor is based on the V2 rocket, which was not an ethically great development. But, you know, then we walked on the moon. Does that, it's very complicated, very complicated. For All Mankind Season 1 does quite a good job of unpicking some of these things in an interesting way. Oh, well done for getting us back on topic, John. But I will also say that Google is also a defense contractor. And no one has mentioned Google in that light. I think it's probably because obviously that makes up a much smaller part of Google's profits than Raytheon. So I completely understand why. But it is interesting that it is clearly about, you know, there is an acceptable percentage of defense contracting that will not stir controversy. It's really difficult. It's a really hard thing. So if you're a defense contractor and you'd like to sponsor Octothought, please get in touch. File 770 reported that in the aftermath of Chengdu in 2023 becoming the seated Worldcon, Winnipeg are exploring a bid for the 2023 NASFIC, which is the North American Science Fiction Convention, which will be held in, excuse me, which is held in North America in years where the Worldcon is not in North America. And this makes a lot of sense because they can repurpose an awful lot of the work they've done in uh, that regard. Chris Garcia, friend of the podcast, has told me that he's planning to run NASFIC as a relaxicon. I think it is front room, something like that. So that might be a third bid. Chris, if you're out there, tell us about your 2023 NASFIC bid, but definitely a relaxicon NASFIC. Which I believe means the... And that's relaxicon in the American sense of a convention without any programme, rather than the British sense of a convention that has entirely too much programme. And I mean, with, with the Worldcon being in Chengdu, I'm sure the NASFIC in 2023 will be uh, extremely small and will fit easily into Chris's front room. Sorry, <clears throat> the Orlando in 2026 Worldcon bid is also pivoting to bidding for a 2023 NASFIC, and this supersedes their 2026 Worldcon bid, which means the bidding conventions for 2026 are now Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, Los Angeles in California, USA, and Nice in France, which is where Brees is from. So everyone should vote for Nice. Very excited. Going to go in Brees cosplay if it wins. Uh, So, you know. Brees? Brees Denise. 
one of the best French films. Ah, oh, so good. Brice Denise. Please put a link to that in the show notes. I will. Yeah, because I was baffled. It's, it's just like a, yeah, it's very good. And if Winnipeg wins the 2023 NASFIC, it will be the first ever NASFIC to be held outside the United States. That's diversity, pals. I mean, it's also worth noting that at the moment there are two 2023 bids, but also if Glasgow in 2024 win the 2024 Worldcon, which looks quite likely as they're currently unopposed, then there'll also be 2024 NASFIC. So maybe one of them will decide to, to swap. But obviously the 2024 NASFIC will be much smaller. And that segues nicely into Glasgow's new push for the new year. And they have launched um, Glasgow fan artist Hugo finalist Ian Clark has done a lovely poster for Glasgow um, showing with scenes of Glasgow and the slogan, I can move 500 miles for Glasgow in 2024, which is clearly a reference to the Proclaimers song, 500 Miles, which we're going to put a link to in the show notes in case you haven't heard it, um, because Octothorpe, the podcast of science fiction, science fiction fandom and massive earworms. The idea is that you do exercise over and above your normal amount of exercise for over and about your normal walking around the house. Actually get up and put your shoes on or roll your wheels or swim or climb or whatever you want to do for 500 miles before Glasgow wins the bid or Glasgow gets to Shikon 8 to try and win the bid. Sorry, if 500 miles is not enough for you and you think that's not a long way to go in, in a couple of hundred days, then why don't you walk 500 more? Run or swim or roll or whatever it is that you like to do to move. And I will, as a committed member of the youth, be instead moving 804.672 kilometres. Oh, blah. I will say, although I think this is a lovely concept and I think it's to be applauded, and I completely understand why they've done move 500 miles instead of walk 500 miles, because I've been thinking about moving house, I was like, I mean, I am going to move to Newcastle from Southampton, but that is an unrealistic expectation of everyone in british fandom to do so i am glad that it is exercise hurrah for glasgow encouraging us all getting out and moving a little bit more i think that is a fantastic thing to be doing and i am absolutely committed to this and if i stuff it up then um yeah wait till i get my picks for why i might stuff it up so let's do picks picks pick pick picks so i've been quite busy this two weeks but i've discovered a great new science fiction show on television that everyone should be watching and i have watched um season one episode one of the expanse which is on amazon prime and it's very good and i think you should all be watching it i know that some of you have been going on at me to watch it for approximately 47 and a half episodes of this podcast but there we go i've caught up now <laughs> except for the other 68 ish episodes and in 2022 i'm going to be doing a lot more of a lot sort of things including re watching the whole of the expanse and um reading more books and reading more fanzines and doing more fanac and doing more art and um, doing some more work because I have to make some money and um, I haven't really decided what I'm going to do less of, but I'm thinking about giving up sleep. Very sensible. You think that'll work, guys? I look forward to chronicling your attempts to do this in, all, in an audio medium every fortnight for the next year. I like The Expanse and I'm glad that Alison is watching it. The first episode was great. It's still going to be as great as that. It's, it has its ups and downs. I wouldn't say it was always amazingly good, but it is, as a whole, very satisfying. And I am enjoying it. And if you're very quick, you could catch up before they finish. You've got like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that is optimism. That, that Wow. 
I look forward to you picking The Expanse as your pick for the next 68 episodes then. <laughs> I promise not to do this. Going to read some real science fiction in the next two weeks or so. I have actually, um, coincidentally, just uh, just placed a hold on the ninth book in the series at the library. So I will be reading that hopefully in the relatively near future. Um, I think it'll be about six or seven weeks probably um but yes do you know do you know what i did on my holiday alison i read some science fiction and fantasy oh excellent so my pick is vita nostra a book originally published in russian by ukrainian writers marina and sergey Dyachenko, and i obviously read the english translation which translated by julia mitoff hersey uh, you, you can reduce it to say that it is essentially a Russian magical college novel, kind of, you know, in the vein of Harry Potter, The Magicians, etc. But it's actually much more interesting and weirder than that. It essentially follows um, Sasha, a teenage girl in Russia, who is approached by by a wizard, basically, and, and carries out a bunch of kind of pretty onerous and strenuous tasks for him. Um, and then these are basically her entry into a magical college and she goes to the magical college where it turns out that magic is just kind of much stranger and weirder than I've I've seen in most novels. And it's all about how essentially learning the process of magic, learning to like they end up reading what starts off as gibberish but becomes something which is intelligible to them. It's ba- it basically the magic system is about kind of retraining your mind to kind of reshape the world in a different way. And yeah, it just it just feels very different to kind of other magical college type novels I've read. Sasha obviously has great power, but um, is not always able to control that great power. And the end, I think, is basically an allegory for sort of the creation of the world. And there is a figure who may or may not be kind of the devil involved. And it just kind of, you know, it feels suffused with this sort of particularly Russian Russian background. It's all about kind of living in these dormitories through the freezing cold and, and sneaking in vodka and i really i really enjoyed it it's very strange it ends in quite a strange way but um it's definitely worth reading nice i may look that up when is it eligible for the hugos liz or is it before that no i think it came out in 2018 oh fair enough. so old hat yeah i I'm going to also pick a very recent and up-and-coming TV series that I'm sure no one has heard of and everyone will rush out and watch. Hispania and I just watched the last episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I'm told all the cool kids have already watched ages ago, uh, but I didn't watch when I was a kid, uh, so I've been catching up. I really enjoyed it. Season 6 was not as good as the other seasons. Season 4 is clearly the best season, don't at me. No, it was. I did like Season 7 quite a lot. But yeah, I really enjoyed it on the whole. We're also uh, about halfway through season three of Angel, uh, and I'm very much enjoying that as well. So yeah, I I have been hugely enjoying that kind of trip down memory lane. And then the next job after that will be Babylon 5 with adverts, because it's on IMDb TV and that has adverts. So that's fun. It's not fun. But you know, it... Just download it from the internet. Nope, never. It's on Amazon Prime, isn't it? It's on IMDb TV, which you access through Amazon Prime, but you can also get, if you don't subscribe to Amazon Prime, but it means that it has adverts because that's how they pay for it. I see. Yes, because IMDb is owned by Amazon and has its own TV service. Yeah, anyway, streaming. 
uh, it's all very easy to understand what's going on. Uh, the other hilariously retro pick I have is Coco, which is less hilariously retro, but we rewatched it on Christmas Day because I felt like I hadn't leaked enough tears that day uh, and I needed to do some more. And yup, still blub the whole way through the ending. Oh my goodness, but I do love that movie. Haven't seen it. Should I watch it? Oh, so good. I love it. I don't know why I haven't seen it. I liked it. I need to get Marianne round and say we are going to watch Coco today. I also watched it and I also cried a little bit. I mean, I also cried at Up and Toy Story 3. So it's obviously a Pixar thing. I saw Up in the um, cinema and I, you know, I was absolutely wrecked 10 minutes into the movie. So, yeah. We watched Coco. The thing is, when you watch Coco or any of these other films we've mentioned in a cinema, it's dark. So no one can see you ugly crying. But when you watch it on Christmas Day with the lights on, everyone can see you ugly crying. And you can see everyone else. Crazy. You know what's worse? I watched it on a plane. Oh, oh, yep, no, fair enough. Uh, yep, 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 yep. Okay, write in with your favourite crying at movies anecdotes, <laughs> listeners, because uh, I suspect there are some doozies in our audience. But for now, that was the Octothought podcast, and it's a goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. It's not 500 miles. Is it 500 kilometres, John? Uh, no, it's, I think it's about 500 kilometres. But obviously, I'm not moving north of Newcastle for the joke. Uh, so it will, have to, it will have to do. Yeah, it turns out, John, you thought you were moving to Newcastle, but you're actually going to have to move to Aberdeen. <laughs> I don't want to live in Aberdeen. Aberdeen fandom are going to write in. <laughs> it's just not where John's job is. Newcastle is, uh, yes, um, 500 kilometers or almost uh almost exactly should we be starting the entire bit again and going turns out john is going to move 500 kilometers because he's one of the youth no oh yeah oh <laughs> do we have to start the whole thing again i'm really hungry the theme music for this episode was fanfare for space by kevin mcleod and competech.com used under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license this podcast will end at the beep Beep.